Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. BIV hosts a number of events throughout the year, and there is still a chance to get tickets to the one we have coming up this week. Our 2018 Top 100 Fastest Growing Companies reception is on October 4th at Telus Garden. This is where we'll celebrate the fastest growing businesses in British Columbia. You can visit BIV.com slash fastest for more info. Today on the show, we're speaking to BIV's tech panel about Facebook, Tesla, and Google turning 20. And later on, the latest in retail trends, specifically how the new USMCA deal could affect retailers in Canada. You're listening to BIV Today. BIV's weekly tech panel joins me in studio. We have Ali Pordad, CEO at Progressa, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society. Thank you both for coming in. Thanks for having me. It has been a tumultuous month for Tesla shares and also for Tesla CEO Elon Musk, who has finally settled with the SEC. This goes back, of course, to that tweet he sent out about taking the company private. Now, Ali, he had a deal. He walked away and then he walked back. What do you make of that? Uh, it's this is a tough one to read, but I'm happy that he made a deal because yeah. uh, he could have very easily been ousted as CEO. Uh, sure, it, it sounded like they were coming for his head. Um, they got him out as chairman. Sounds like the market was pretty happy about that. You know, I think the market uh, reacted quite positively. They have probably for the better court, better part of the last six to twelve months wanted to see some checks and balances in Tesla. They think like that. They think Tesla may be misrun in some respects. And now you have a, you know, you're going to have an independent chairman come in and run that company or oversee Elon as CEO. And uh, that should make a difference. And the market reacted very positively yesterday. I think the stock was up 20, maybe 22% in one day. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Yeah. So he'll be CEO, Linda. What, What do you think that dynamic could be like? We don't know who might fill that role of chairman, but there could be some tension there, I think. Elon Musk did not want to give that up. Definitely. I'm guessing he didn't want to give it up. And he, um, my other thought is the, his, his followers, the Teslarati are counting the days till he's possible, till it's possible for him to be chairman again. He's got a pretty insider-ish board going on. Uh, how independent those new board directors will be. Um, it's hard to know, but I'm guessing in three years, he will also have a timer counting down on his phone the minute he can take over the reins again. Yeah, I agree. He probably has his eyes on it. Um, and he is a major shareholder, so easily has the power to regain that position if he wants it. Absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how the stock does over the course of two, three years, because we've talked in prior shows about is Tesla going to survive or are they going to go bankrupt? And if, if so, who will be the ultimate owner of that company? Mm-hmm. Um, so this this is, you know, the next two, three quarters, I think, are going to tell us a lot about. Well, outcome. and this morning they announced that they did ship 53,000 uh, Model 3s, which was the goal that he wanted to reach to come towards profitability. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing the SEC deal was because he knew he needed some good news this week. And let's clear up the SEC. Let's show that we're profitable or towards it, moving towards it. And life is good over at Tesla again. Mm-hmm. I agree. Now, Ali, you, you brought up a good point. He is a major shareholder. How much change could we see under a new chairman over the next two years? Could we see drastic changes, do you think? Or is it going to sort of be a bit of a holding pattern? I think what you're going to see is better expectation management of the market. I think uh, Elon has not done a good job of managing investor expectations. And he's sort of not been getting ahead of things. 
So the proper chairman coming in in this scenario can really help get him under control and get get him communicating better to the market. Uh, and that may make all the difference. I mean, especially if they are starting to hit their numbers, uh, that, that could be it. And this legal compliance, communications compliance officer or whatever they're going to call on the person who's going to make sure Elon doesn't tweet what he's not supposed to. I'm guessing the chairman will have um, an ally in that person, and that's mm-hmm. going to help the stock price and everything settle itself down. The stock's doing better when he's not tweeting as much. So I think that's a big move forward for the shareholders. And do you think, Linda, in a, in a chairman, might we see someone who's maybe from a more traditional background, less visionary, more get the job done, say, perhaps from the auto industry versus the tech industry? Wouldn't that be a nice fit for Tesla? I don't know who's going to take that job. I have no idea who's going to take that job. Uh, it it could be from the auto sector. Could be, um, you know, I think GE's uh, CEO just got removed. He mm-hmm. would he'd be an interesting person to consider for chairman of Tesla, just be, given his uh, background in production. And what do we do about competitive issues, though? How are we putting someone on the board who's a, working in a competitive space? That that's a good point. Yeah, it probably won't be from another auto auto manufacturer mm-hmm. for that reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. I'm sure it'll be the topic of one of our upcoming tech panels for sure. Another story I want to focus on is a vulnerability in Facebook's code that ultimately gave hackers access to 50 million accounts with the power to actually take them over. Now, Facebook has says that this issue is resolved. But Linda, I I want to get your thoughts on this. Do we put this in the same camp as, say, the Cambridge Analytica issue? Is it sort of around data and we can lump it all in one? Or is this is this separate? I'm going to try not to be the doomsayer. This is very, very bad industry-wide. It's vast. It's beyond the walls of Facebook. Cambridge Analytica was a hack of your profiles that were public anyway. Um, you may have not wanted Cambridge to see those that profile data, but it did. This is a hack of all of the private information contained within your Facebook account. But more importantly, it's tied to the single sign-on feature that Facebook has uh, been an identity provider to a lot of apps and services across the internet. And it's that hole that is uh, making security experts fear that this is now beyond the walls of Facebook and we are now looking at breaches on almost every major online account. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, what I was I was going to make the same uh, the same uh, comment, which is this is a major time suck for business. Uh, Even Progressa at our company, we had to do a whole evaluation when we got this news because our portal has a Facebook login. So we weren't sure whether, you know, there was vulnerabilities in our own portal due to this breach of of the code. And in fact, there was. In fact, this this same vulnerability exists across anybody who offers Facebook login to their platform. And so not only is it a time suck and a a drain on your resources, uh, but effective November 1st, Canadian companies are actually, there's going to be legislation coming in. There's a new privacy code coming in that requires companies to reach out to all of their uh, customers and notify them of these security breaches. So uh, this this is just uh, an example of a downstream impact of Facebook being so integrated the way they are. Well, here's where I see it too, is, is this uh, vulnerability has been active since July of 2017. So this is a 14-month window. These hackers have been doing what they're doing over there. The only reason they got caught is I'm guessing they made a mistake because they spiked the uh, Facebook servers and Facebook went about 10 days ago. What's all that activity about? Mm-hmm. Yep. So they find it, they close it down, and, and now we're into this um, this view into how actually vulnerable we are online. But a University of Illinois out of Chicago research paper that came out in the summer 
walked through this breach in, in immense detail, <clears throat> excuse me, and they did an audit of 95 sites and they found that most of those sites, over 90% had no way of checking the activity logs from these hackers, even knowing if there is an activity, how to shut an activity down. Uh, so that's why I say the ramifications from this are going to go on and on. We just can't even know how deep this is. And without a single sign off feature, it doesn't exist yet, right? You can't say, I want to sing, I want to sign off everywhere my Facebook right. account is signed on. I want to now sign off. We can't do that. Yeah, it, but Facebook did take the right steps. Uh, once, once they uh, found out of the breach, they did log everybody out. I, I mean, they did, I, I but got, I got logged out of my account. Yeah, and 90 million accounts and the tokens are still there. And, and the, the researchers, again, from the University of Illinois, um, were able to get into Expedia accounts. They were able to follow uh, using these tokens, follow uh, Uber drivers, Uber rides, tip wow. the driver after, Wow! go on to Tinder, read private messages, and it would show on the user's Tinder account that those messages hadn't been read. So that's the level of, of uh, underground nature to this, this incredible hack. And if you're looking at the dark web, the rumors are these profiles that have been scraped now just from Facebook are going for about five bucks Canadian a profile. So I don't know if the goal was to steal data uh, in the aim of selling it on, or if this is a more nefarious breach but but it's big five bucks canadian to access one of these profiles or Correct. to get the information to get the, on get it? the information okay that's right because I, I believe the access tokens they've all been reset yeah. everyone was pushed to log out and now had to log back in but the fact is they had access over 14 months the, the, they have it yeah for 14 months it's since there. last july so they've got the data yeah. the data exists in in these hackers databases right they're, they're not just looking at it for you know dinner table conversation. They're, they stole it. They're using it to do what with? Good question. Hopefully only to sell it on. I have a <laughs> feeling we'll be talking about uh, about this breach over the course of the next several months. Absolutely. As, wow. they, as they learn more. Yeah. Well, so for consumers and for businesses, what can you do when something like that happens? You can change your passwords, right? But that, I mean, that's your, your information. And the scary thing is you don't necessarily know what's out there if you were immediately affected. Yeah, I mean, as, as a company that's sort of a late stage private business ourselves, we're doing sort of company wide risk assessments. And this is just part of it as part of understanding your risk universe as a business. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to understand your IT vulnerabilities, your, you know, both from a, from a customer facing standpoint and an internal standpoint. You know, you have hundreds of employees. Uh, do you, are you vulnerable internally? Are you vulnerable with your if you're a B2B company and you have bid software for other companies? You, you need to understand your risk universe as a business. Uh, otherwise, you're vulnerable to situations like this. And on a personal front, you one can go look at your activity list over on Facebook and see what's happening over there. A bit of more bad news. Some of the security experts are saying if the hackers are in your account for less than 60 minutes, they won't appear in that list. But you could go over and take a look. A lot of the apps you're signing into don't have a list like that for you to look at. So what do you do? You're going to change your password everywhere. You're going to consider getting another email address because it's your email address is halfway mm -hmm. to owning to knowing a lot about your account. And me personally, I'm going to do a risk assessment on whether Facebook is worth the hassle. Yeah, that's an important question because it may not be. What do you think, Ali? I, I would keep your credit card information off off Facebook. Absolutely. If, if yeah. you've ever considered putting it on, I would not I would not put it on there. Maybe just keep your very basic information on. Maybe take your address off, take off 
other sort of uh, information you don't want out there. And I don't, you know, we were talking too about this week, Face, it's a bad week for Mr. Zuckerberg, but it also came out that the two-factor authentication phone numbers that you're using to secure your Facebook account, ironically, are being sold to advertisers from Facebook. <laughs> so you're using a, your phone number to secure your account and that phone number is being passed over as marketing data. So, so do you remove the two-factor authentication on your mm. account that's making it secure? I guess you're keeping the hackers out, but you're letting the advertisers in. That's a slippery slope. That's a very slippery slope. Now, do we trust Google more? Because you, through your email, would very likely have credit card statements, perhaps credit card numbers, all kinds of personal information. Ali, you suggested maybe keeping your credit card disassociated from Facebook. What about from a Google? Yeah, Google definitely has more of my data, including my credit card information because of, of my Android phone. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question, Haley. I, I uh, you know, Google makes my life pretty good. It makes it yeah. very convenient. We've had this conversation on many shows. Yeah. And uh, so I make that trade-off. Uh, but... Uh, I think with Facebook, if you know if they're sort of overtly selling the data and potentially being nefarious, as you put it, uh, that that uh, that's a whole different ballgame. And I think we're going to be having a conversation later about how Google's single sign-on feature is is uh, vulnerable to this problem as well. So mm-hmm. we're not uh, Google's not out of the weeds on this. They're very much in it with yeah, Facebook they're, and everybody else. They're all using, they're all using the same sort of token style. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and if you talk about how. Facebook is connected. I mean, Google has, they just had their 20th anniversary, eight products with a billion users each. That is a lot of people, a lot of data. On a, on a positive side of things, though, I, I think there is a lot to celebrate with Google. They've changed our world fundamentally. I mean, it's a verb now. I think you've made it when you say <laughs> your name has turned into a verb to do something. Where do you think we'd be without Google? I like looking back on the stats and seeing that when they first, you know, 20 years ago, they were doing 10,000 queries a day, search queries a yeah. day, mm-hmm. and now it's 40,000 a second. Amazing. I mean, it's crazy. It, it is. We are Googling it, but also the um, the landscape of search engines is dramatically changing with voice-activated search. How are we monetizing voice-activated search? Yeah. Google's now the default search engine for all Apple products, voice-activated and hardware-based, costing them a billion dollars a month pretty soon to have the right to do that. I would say uh, the mobile phone has changed the game, changed the playing field for Google more than anything else. I think that, you know, search has been very successful, but I can think back 20, 25 years when Yahoo was a verb and mm-hmm. we didn't know what Google was. Mm-hmm. And then 20, 25 years from now, it could be something else. But the mobile phone has really changed the landscape for Google successfully. Android has, uh, you know, the most used phone on the planet. Uh, and uh, I think that's that's probably what's going to drive them. Into, into the future. It's also important to remember that Google is an ad company, right? That's their business is selling us stuff. Mm-hmm. So how much does search affect their ad revenue versus other uh, other channels they have for putting ads in front of us? I think Google will do fine if their search rev- ad revenue drops. Uh, they'll find another way to monetize. There's enough users to do that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And they have, I think it's 91% market share for search engine traffic. They're a monopoly, which leads me to my next question. Might we see over the next two decades some challenges to that, either from government or other companies? Yes, you are going to see challenges from the government. Uh, Maybe not this government that you have in the US right now, but future governments for sure in the US will challenge uh, the monopolistic um, practices that not only Google... 
uh, follow, but Amazon is probably the better example of it uh, because they have their hands in, in I think, uh, a more diverse range of in industries. Uh, and yeah, probably others as well. I, I would think Microsoft is still probably guilt guilty of that as well. Bing's still there. Yep. Still st making money <laughs> they're not, and profitable. They're not forcing it, though, on you when they you, are log, not, in, when yeah. you well, log into is, Windows anymore. Is, oh, uh, really? And they lost the uh, uh, voice-activated search. Mm. Bing used to be the voice, Apple's voice-activated search default, and now it's not I, I can remember as like a 10-year-old when I logged into Windows and they were pushing Internet Explorer on you. Yeah. And, I'm, and I, was I was thinking to myself, this is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> I want to use Netscape. <laughs> right? Because that's where the cool kids were. That's yeah. right. No offense. <laughs> but I think that we're going to move away, especially as voice activation becomes the way we do things. We need to get an answer engine. Search engines are great, but I don't really want 17 million answers for my question. So I think as, as a disruptor comes in, and this might even be Google disrupting themselves, we need to get an answer to the question I ask. And that's really important in a voice activated environment. Yeah, I, I think several shows ago, we were talking about the founder of the World Wide Web creating the next version of the Tim, World Wide Web. Sir Tim Berners-Lee. That's right. And he's, and he's creating the decentralized web. I think that is your answer to uh, this monopolistic question. There you I go. agree. Yeah, that'll be an interesting to watch for. As always, Ali, Linda, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's Linda Focus, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Ali Portad, CEO of Progressa. Coming up next, co-host Tyler Orton is speaking to retail insiders Craig Patterson. And with us today to talk about the latest news in retail, it is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of RetailInsider.com. Craig, as always, great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so big breaking news out, I guess, happened late Sunday night, but we have a new NAFTA replacement. This is now going to be called the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. doesn't really roll off the tongue the same way that NAFTA does, but uh, I think one of the big things is kind of the potential impact that it could have on retail here in Canada. What's your first reaction to this new USMCA deal? Uh, the part that caught my attention the most uh, with a real retail focus is the change in the de minimis level. And what that means is the amount of money that you're allowed to spend, say, in the United States online and have a product shipped to Canada. It's been increased from $20 to $150. So I think that's going to be a big deal because what it means, though, is a lot of Canadians, they're going to look south of the border for even better deals, knowing that they're not going to get hit with uh, some pretty high charges at, at some times uh, with regards to stuff coming over across the border again. Is this going to be felt pretty acutely by retailers here in Canada, would you, would you say? I would say probably more than people realize. Um, I mean, and I'll admit I'll probably be one of those people that will start shopping over the border a bit more myself. Uh, you know, even speaking from that personal experience, what this means is now we can order something online from the United States for quite a bit more money, bring it over without having to pay those duties. I believe there's a $40 limit on GST, HST, uh, but $150 is the limit you can bring over. But another thing is they're saying they're not looking to really enforce higher levels beyond $150, uh, you know, to any degree or sorry, to any great degree compared to how they were in the past. So again, you could order something for $1,000 and in theory, maybe not, you know, pay any duties on that either, just depending how enforcement is. Uh, this could really hit Canadian retailers hard, especially uh, e-commerce retailers, those that supply things online. 
Do you think the big litmus test, I guess, is going to be Cyber Monday, for example? I, actually, you know, I, I do wonder if there's going to have to be legis- legislation that needs to go through Congress down in the United States as well. We also have a new Mexican governor or a new Mexican president coming into governance in December. I wonder if maybe holidays 2018 won't be the litmus test year. But I mean, after that, what do you think this really spells for maybe Cyber Monday or, or Black Friday holidays from 2019 onward? I think a lot of Canadians were shopping domestically because, you know, of those duty levels, right? I mean, certainly some people are shopping in the United States, but uh, I, I think that now this is sort of, some people would say level the playing field. I would say maybe not level the play of playing field. And what I mean by that is um, you can order from the United States and you don't have to pay those taxes that you would have to pay to the Canadian retailers. So you're kind of getting a double savings. So the consumer might be happy because they're saying, well, you know, a lot of these products in the States are cheaper anyways. It is cheaper to do business down there. So, you know, e-commerce is a little more developed in the States. So if we're able to shop, uh, you know, with American retailers uh, in that capacity, uh, you know, there's a potential for tremendous cost savings for consumers. However, uh, this puts Canadian retailers at a disadvantage because they still have to charge, you know, certain taxes uh, on their products, and also they might be more expensive. So this is going to be a really interesting time. Well, strategy-wise, I I wonder if there's room for Canadian retailers to get creative when it comes to shipping, because I I think one of the things that stops me from making, you know, purchases from the U.S., though, is just uh, the high shipping costs compared with what I'm going to pay online for what the Canadian option might be. Uh, Canadian retailers are going to have to do whatever they can to be competitive at this stage. Uh, you know, whether or not it's free shipping, extremely fast shipping, uh, which, you know, does exist. I just noticed an online, that's something I ordered last night. It's already being shipped up by Canada Post. I mean, things like that are terrific and probably hard if you're ordering from L.A. or New York. But, um, yeah, no, I think Canadian retailers are going to have to find all kinds of ways to be uh, a little more innovative right now. I think this is going to be a wake-up call for a lot of companies that, you know, were able to, I think, succeed uh, uh, because of demandless. Well, one of the American firms that I think would benefit very much from this is, of course, Amazon.com, and they have announced that they plan on expanding even more here in Vancouver. I'm, I'm not talking about those you know, cool tech offices, but they actually have another fulfillment center, their third in Metro Vancouver. It's also going to be their largest, 450,000 square feet. It's going to be on Tawasin First Nations land. What does this spell really for a lot of the Canadian retailers just with regards to how much, I guess, our spending habits are shifting more towards Amazon and away from some of those small businesses that we used to shop from? Uh, Amazon is uh, you know, the largest online retailer in North America uh, currently in operation and uh, really uh, you know, continues to grow in different ways. I mean, the uh, warehouse announcement, I think, is terrific. It speaks to their success in terms of they need another uh, you know, distribution center. Uh, I think more is on the way, I think, uh, and including some more fancy offices for Vancouver downtown. But, yep. uh, you know, Amazon is really making a major move into Canada. And, you know, if small retailers aren't, uh, you know, doing something to differentiate themselves, or I guess any retailers in that uh, respect, you know, Amazon will bowl over a lot, a lot of categories, including uh, bed-in-a-box mattresses. They announced this morning that they were getting into that business as well. Yeah, because I know that there's been a Canadian company, Endy, they've been getting into that particular business. And I've noticed all my podcast advertisements, they're they're now filled with not just Casper mattress advertisements, but Endy mattress uh, advertisements as well. Is is this concerning for this bed in the box business that has been booming in the last year or so? Definitely, I think. Um, I think I was looking at some of the initial prices for the Amazon mattresses, and if they are uh, of as reasonable quality, 
I'm not, you know, a quality expert, but if they're pretty darn good compared to Andy and Casper, which are really, really exceptional products, uh, this could be uh, really, really concerning. I mean, Amazon has great search search engine optimization. It's got great brand awareness. Uh, It's got, you know, distribution, building another warehouse, uh, you know, making it, uh, you know, a tremendous competitor. This could uh, be quite transformational and could really take market share from competitors. And, you know, there are already a lot of competitors. I think there's about 100 uh, mattress-in-a-box brands, you know, of different sizes. Casper, uh, Andy is the largest in Canada. Casper, I think, might be the largest in the world. But there's a few others that are coming out and about, and now there's Amazon. Yeah, is that just going to be the, the modus operandi for Amazon? Just pick one sector at random and then just dominate it? push the competitors out of business. I mean, I, I just find this kind of concerning that there doesn't really seem to be much that competitors can do just because Amazon has a stranglehold on e-commerce at this point. Uh, Amazon's really strong. I mean, I think last week they announced that they were getting into a company that is building materials. Like they're, they're picking almost random uh, areas to, to expand into and, uh, you know, are testing it and doing it. I mean, uh, you know, building materials, that's not something we would have expected from Amazon. Uh, Mattress in a box? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's certainly a retail product they distribute and so do the other companies. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So uh, I don't know. I mean, we're seeing Amazon go. They're saying they might do 3,000 of these stores where you can walk in and walk out, you know, paying automatically without having to wait at a till, you know, in a lineup. Um, they just launched a concept in New York City, Amazon Four Star, which is, uh, you know, they sell products that have four stars or higher on Amazon's website. So uh, you know, they're being really, really innovative. And uh, I'm actually proposing uh, an Amazon-related concept uh, for a property in Toronto. I won't go into details just yet, but uh, it would also be something very, very innovative that would be a partnership with a major uh, landlord doing a project uh, uh, project of the future and uh, and Amazon. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're good to horse to bet on, but uh, they could really kill the competition. Yeah, well, you have to keep us updated on that uh, project going on in Toronto because I'm sure a lot of Vancouverites will be curious about what's going on. You bring up building materials, and I, I just want to remind our listeners that we do have Build Direct that is based here in Vancouver, which people have been you know, kind of talking about as the Amazon of building materials. So this has implications for a Vancouver-based company as well. So we're going to have to keep watching Amazon very closely because I, I think everybody's wondering about what the impacts are going to be, especially here on the West Coast. On the West Coast. Now, the other thing that I think we're wondering about here on the West Coast is where exactly can you go get wine in a grocery store? We just got an announcement uh, last week that we now have 29 BC grocery stores that are selling wine, but it's only BC wine. We, we can't really get foreign wines here at your grocery store shelves. So that's prompting a lot of complaints from, uh, you know, the Americans as well, especially that they want to take this to uh, international trade groups to complain here. But tell me, Craig, is it kind of weird that British Columbians are, are just excited that we get any sort of option inside of a grocery store? It just feels if you go across the border, I mean, this is just par for the course. Everybody already has these as options in grocery stores. That's right. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Uh, I was told that one of the reasons Trader Joe's hadn't come up to Canada, that's the American uh, grocery store that often has alcohol in the stores, wine primarily. One of the reasons they hadn't come to Canada was because we didn't, um, well, they didn't have the opportunity to stock their alcohol selection, which I think was about 40% of their sales. I wow. think that's the estimate of uh, of what that is. So alcohol sales in a grocery store can be quite high. Now, uh, you know, in British Columbia right now, it's BC wines and it's in a limited number of stores. But nevertheless, if a retailer can make a margin off of that, this could be 
you know, almost the difference between succeeding and failing as a retailer. Grocery store margins are very low. Uh, they can be, you know, between one and 4%, which is a lot less than a fashion retailer. So anything a grocery retailer can do to, you know, bump up those margins is welcome. And alcohol is one of them. No, but the thing is that I keep going back to is just, I guess, the format that we have to do that because one of the things that they're giving options are that store within a store format, which not too many retailers have really been fond of. And then now we only have the option if it's going to be in the grocery store proper, it has to be BC only wines. I, I mean, is it just kind of a difficult endeavor for, I guess, British Columbians at this point? It just doesn't seem as if we're going to be getting exactly what consumers are demanding. Well, I mean, BC wines aren't anything shabby. I think they're you uh-huh. know, fairly well respected, well, very well respected, I would say. But uh, nevertheless, you know, if the consumer wants that choice of, say, you know, a fine Chilean wine or, you know, anywhere around the world, Australia, and they're going to have to go to their, uh, you know, authorized retailer. So uh, I don't know. I guess, you know, this is a good first start. Perhaps it's going to open the door to future um, expanded distribution of wine in stores. And perhaps with, you know, trade agreements and Lord only knows what happens with politics, they might definitely be the the case at some point that we'll see all kinds of wines in the stores. But um, I think a little bit of it's retail and some of it's regulatory and probably some of it's political. Okay, well, you said a key word there, or you said two key words, which is uh, authorized retailer. And I think that's going to be just a shameless excuse for me to talk about our next topic here, Craig. But uh, Tim Hortons, they are cracking down on these knockoff sorts of outlets that are popping up across the globe. The latest one is a Tim Hawtons in India. We also have stories about how, you know, there's that Tim house that popped up in South Korea a few years back. And also in South Korea, they're selling Tim Morton's instant coffee. Tell me, I, what, what is the appeal of Tim's brand overseas? Well, Tim Hortons has actually really good branding, I think. It's got an iconic logo. It's got a uh, brand awareness, and it's been around for a while. So one thing <laughs> it's interesting, one thing I've seen a bit uh, in different parts of Asia, be it India or especially China, is uh, counterfeit retailers. And if you you know go online and you Google you know a Supreme store in, in China, you'll see there are actually stores set up, like, say, you know, kind of a fake Louis Vuitton store, a fake, uh, uh, you know, Tim Hortons. <laughs> You know, it's inspired by the original, but it's it's certainly not the original. And in this case, Tim Hortons needs to preserve its own brand by, uh, you know, going after companies that, uh, you know, might be causing this confusion. In Canada, that would be, you know, blatantly illegal to do what, uh, you know, that business person in India did in creating this Tim Hortons uh, uh, coffee brand. But uh, one thing I thought was interesting is there were some reviews of this brand online, apparently, that said that, uh, you know, people had said this was the best coffee they'd ever tasted. And I don't know if I could say that about Tim Hortons in Canada. <laughs> so perhaps yeah. perhaps the Indian company has something on our uh, domestic business. Okay. Well, I'm still curious what uh, their maple dip is going to compare with the uh, the home brand here <laughs> in uh, Canada. But uh, hey, Craig, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That's Craig Patterson. He is the editor-in-chief of RetailInsider.com. And that's it for BIV today. Thank you for listening. You can find our archives on iTunes or go to Stitcher. You can also find our news stories at BIV.com or just wait for that uh, good old-fashioned print edition. For now, we'll be back next time.